Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. I'm Lucy Lamble. Welcome to this edition of the Global Development Podcast, which looks back at 2017, a year that's seen some critical changes in developing countries. The president, it's no secret, has made it very clear that he's a pro-life president. The reinstatement of this policy and ensures that we're standing up not just for, uh, for life, but for also taxpayer funds that are being spent overseas to perform an action that is contrary to the values of this president. In South Sudan, almost two million people are on the brink of starvation from the effects of drought and civil war. I'm just going to bring you some breaking news now saying that President Robert Mugabe has resigned is accused of allowing his wife to usurp constitutional power by trying to position her as his successor. Joining me to take a look at some of the main stories affecting millions around the planet are, down the line, Jason Burke, Africa correspondent for The Guardian, reporting from across the continent. And in the studio, Liz Ford, Deputy Editor for Global Development. The year started with the arrival of President Trump on the international stage. And of course, with him came the global gag, a move that withdrew a great deal of US funding for family planning across the world. Liz, family planning such a vexed subject where policy seems to take an abrupt 180 degree turn depending on whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans in office. Could you recap exactly how the global gag works and what did Trump's election mean for women and families around the world? It's had a a pretty devastating effect for women. The um, global gag rule, which is officially known as the Mexico City policy, basically cuts out funding, US funding for any foreign organisation that's doing anything to do with abortion. So that could be just having a leaflet in your centre or it could be full on actually carrying out abortions. So it cuts all funding. And it comes in with the, the Republicans and then the Democrats rescind this Mexico City policy. It's brought in under Reagan. Um, and every time that it's brought in, there's a spike in unsafe abortions, um, maternal deaths. It's it's pretty devastating. What makes this one particularly nasty is the fact that it's been extended So not only does it cover family planning, um, funding, it actually covers all global health assistance um, from the US. So the Centre for Health and Gender Equity, which is based in Washington, says that at least... 1,200 foreign NGOs will be impacted by the global gag rule. That's a huge number. Yeah, it is. And I think at the moment people are still in shock about it, reading from it and still trying to calculate what it actually means. I mean, for example, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, which has refused to sign up to the global gag, at the time said that they were going to be losing millions. Their member associations will be losing millions of dollars. And, you know, in Uganda, for example, the member association that I visited, they're looking at funding being cut very soon, so programmes will have to end in advance. In Mozambique, one organisation has lost sort of two-thirds of its funding 
just like that because they rely on the US. So this is going to be pretty tricky. And and as much as you're worried, obviously, about maternal mortality rates going up, the other great concern often is, is adolescence, isn't it? That they're actually getting basic information about their sexual and reproductive health. Yes, and that's, as you say, that's a very vexed issue when it comes to young people. Because it covers such a wide remit, I think teenagers have the highest HIV infection rates in parts of Africa, but they're not going to find that they can get the services that they need. This organisation in, in Mozambique, for example, reaches out to young people with HIV care and their, if their funding's cut, their programmes will be cut and this could have you know, a devastating effect on young people in the region. And the UN body responsible for family planning had a double hit, didn't it? So, yes. Yeah, so after the global gag, the Trump administration decided to end funding for the UNFPA, which is the UN Population Fund, and that's under the Kemp-Caston Amendment. And that basically forbids foreign aid to organisations that are believed to be involved in coercive abortion or involuntary sterilisation, which is something that the UNFPA denies. And in fact, the memo that was announcing the move actually stated there was no evidence that the UNFPA actually engages in this. So it just, again, feels like this is what you do when you're a Republican in power, you kind of flick all these sort of switches. And again, that's that means, I think last year, more than $60 million was paid to the UNFPA from the US. So again, that's going to have big consequence for them. But other countries, other donor countries, did their own response, this, this She Decides movement. How, how's that evolving? So within days of Trump reinstating the global gag in January, Lillian Pluman, who's the Dutch minister, came in and said, right, we're going to fill the gap. Um, and so the, the movement, the She Decides movement emerged from that, which is basically to campaign to, to find money to give to UNFPA, to Mary Stopes, to IPPF. And um, they had a pledging conference in March, which raised about $100 million. And by the end of the year, they're expecting it to be about $500 million. And there's a big push globally. They've got global ambassadors on board. It's quite a phenomenal kind of movement that's kind of sparked this kind of effort. But there's still a huge gap. I mean, the impact of this, you're looking at sort of like $8.8 billion of funding that needs to be found. So there are like lots of drops of the ocean, but actually it's kind of what she decides, I think, has done as well, is has sort of rejuvenated um, the, the women's rights organisations. In July in London, there was the second big family planning summit. What was the mood like there? It was quite defiant, but it was um, it was kind of worried. There was a, definitely a concern amongst people there because the US is the biggest bilateral funder for family planning contraceptives. So, um, and Melinda Gates came out and just sort of said, you know, Trump is worrying, and that kind of got a lot of the headlines. But I think it, there are concerns because the FP twenty twenty project, which was launched in twenty twelve, with the idea to give like one hundred twenty million more women and girls access to contraceptive in the key countries, sixty nine key countries. Is off track. Halfway in, they've only sort of reached 30 million women and girls. So there's a massive push that needs to happen and money needs to come with that. So there are concerns about that this is just not going to going to be reached. Sobering and definitely something for us to be watching in the coming year. Well, thank you very much. It wasn't just Trump who was inaugurated in January, of course, this year. It was a big year for elections all over the world and big changes in governance too. Jason, we've been seeing these long-staying and increasingly unpopular leaders actually moving on out this year in some cases. So I'm referring, of course, to Gambia, there's Zimbabwe, you know, which effectively bookended the year. And of course, there's been this really resilient fight for democracy, very evident on the streets in Kenya. Shall we start with Gambia? A big change there. Yeah, I mean, Yaya Jammeh had been in power for 22 years. And I was talking to people, people are very well informed, uh, who watching Gambia 
before the elections and talking to them about what might come up and who was going to win and who wasn't and what the opposition was going to do. And there was absolutely no sense that that election was going to see the end of Jammer's rule. And it did. I mean, it didn't in a particularly straightforward way. Uh, it involved uh, quite a lot of eventual sabre-rattling by the Senegalese and a lot of pressure from other West African states. But they, they got there in the end, and, and Jammer is off in, in Equatorial Guinea, I think, um, last reported attending a farm, uh, quite what he's doing right, at a farm. Quite change of scene. Or, yeah, or, or quite what he's doing with his very large collection of luxury vehicles, which he brought out with him as well on his farm, I'm not sure. But but, but the point is, is that, you know, particularly, I think, in, in West Africa, the sense is that that worked, that there were the powers came together, Nigeria, Liberia, other powers came together and basically said, we will not stand for this. This is not how we do things in West Africa. Um, and that is a pretty positive. In the east and in the south of the continent, it's, as you say, rather different. I mean, Mugabe did go, which is a good thing. But in a rather troubling way, in a, in a coup that dared not speak its name, and there are still very worrying question marks over uh, not just that process, but what that process has left. I mean, this was basically not a kind of democratic uprising by the people, although on the streets of Harare there was an awful lot of uh, rejoicing and enthusiasm for reform. It was basically ZANU-PF, the ruling party, and Mugabe's vehicle until now, um, cleaning its own house effectively and making sure that it was well placed to keep power going forward because the uh, succession of Mugabe's second wife, Grace, would have threatened that continued rule. So it, it, it was positive in some senses, but, but still some very concerning aspects. And as for Kenya... Well, that kind of depends on where you stand in a very polarised country. We had two elections. We had a rerun of the first election. The second one forced by what appeared to be a landmark Supreme Court ruling, the first time on the continent that a judicial decision had overturned an uh, election, particularly by an incumbent, uh, that's Uhuru Kenyatta, seeking a, a second five-year term. In the end, he got it. Nobody's questioning it now. The opposition is in some disarray, and so is the Supreme Court, which has kind of been kicked back into its box by the political executive, the politicians. Neither election saw the kind of violence that some people have been predicting, a return to 2007, 2008, when there was a 1,000 people dead and massive displacement. But uh, people did die, 60, 70 people died. So again, it's a mixed picture. I mean, in some ways, you could say that this is all part of Kenya establishing itself as a, a mature democracy, uh, in other ways, you could see it as quite threatening to democracy and analysts are divided on which way we should view it. Meanwhile, the citizens in DR Congo are still awaiting elections. Uh, no sign yet that President Kabila is ready to hand over and and a pretty tough humanitarian situation in, in areas like Kasai at the moment. Yeah, the, the overall situation in DRC is extremely worrying. There is limited evidence, I think it's fair to say, that Joseph Kabila has any intention of handing over power uh, and, and seems to think that his strategy is... Her strategy to just continually push back elections and hope that something's going to turn up which will allow him to stand for third term or somehow 
otherwise cement his and his cliques hold on power will just turn up. As he does so, and partly because he's doing so, there is a very significant deterioration in the humanitarian situation and, of course, the security situation, the two going hand in hand, across much of the country, but particularly in the Kazai provinces, in the central south and in the east, increasingly, where last week we had 15 UN peacekeepers killed in an attack by a local militia. So things are looking very bad. All three axes, if you like, the security, the political and the humanitarian all go together. As there is a significant deterioration in the political front, that has clear ramifications across the other elements too and is causing an awful lot of very significant need among very vulnerable populations. Let's continue with that theme of humanitarian crises, which unfortunately are a a bit of a benchmark of the year. One indication of that is the fact that the Disasters and Emergency Committee actually had three concurrent appeals at one point, with Yemen uh, starting earlier in the year, the crisis in East Africa, and then most recently for the Rohingya arriving in, in southern Bangladesh from Myanmar. And, of course, we had a a tough hurricane season in the Caribbean, um, particularly devastating and leading to all kinds of debates about development and humanitarian funding. Liz, what's your impression of of the year? It's really hard to compare them, but has this been significantly worse than any other years or...? Uh, It's very difficult to to compare them. I I don't know whether it feels a bit more... um in your face in a way uh, it's, it's I mean generally the whole of the year certainly from a women's rights point of view has been completely clouded by Trump and everything else so it's almost like everything the man does or doesn't do makes everything worse so any kind of disaster it's made worse because perhaps it's sort of how he reacts to certain crises on his own doorstep hurricanes in, in Puerto Rico for example that's kind of quite shocking how he's reacting to that so in a way everything feels quite bad but the UK government has, has come under fire for how it's failed to, to do enough in a timely way when it comes to Hurricane Irma. It was sort of bound by OECD rules around aid, which means that funding can only go to poorer countries. And the Turks and Caicos, you know, does not cut it as one of those. But people are still in need. So it's kind of, you know, balancing the, the two things up. And it's definitely an example that will go into the continued talks about the changes to the rules around aid. Definitely. It's because there was nothing actually stopping Britain being generous in its response to the current, obviously logistical challenges as, as ever, but it was really a, a debate about technically how uh, things were arranged on a budget sheet, wasn't it? Would it count towards the 0.7 under the OECD official development assistant rules? Yes, and I think, and the UK government is very keen on making sure, I mean, it's, it's legislated that we do meet the 0.7%. So there's lots of things that go on and it's almost like pushing papers around to make everything fit in the right sort of boxes. And the UK did give um, money, they, they did support, they sent as much as they could or were allowed to do. So they would sort of say that they did act in a good way. And of course, since then, we have a new Secretary of State uh, for development. We do indeed. That um, sort of came a little bit left field um, with Priti Patel uh, resigning and Penny Mordaunt coming in. So it's sort of, uh, she's came out and made sort of big announcements about focusing on disabilities, which is what Priti Patel had started and actually was already floating around at Diffie before that. So it'd be really interesting to see how things move under her, definitely. Jason, you've been covering some of the humanitarian tragedies unfurling on the continent. You visited both South Sudan and Somalia this year at the peak of the hunger crisis. What was the situation like there? Let's start with Somalia. When I got to Somalia, I think that was April, the main problem was cholera which obviously goes very often with hunger. It it, it was 
killing a, a large number of kids, particularly. Unfortunately, we don't know how many because a lot of them are in areas beyond um, where we can get any decent information and where the humanitarian agencies can get to. But it, I, I mean, that was part of a much broader issue. Obviously, you had the drought. We also have an upsurge in insecurity with with more violence. The insurgency of the Al Shabaab Islamist organisation still very tenacious and strong. So you you had that typical uh, situation with with. Again, the security, the political, there was an election earlier in the year and the humanitarian all playing together to create a perfect storm, if you like. And it was a it, the, the only good thing that came out of it, if you like, the only positive was that there was a very significant international effort which did mitigate some of the worst effects of the drought and the incipient famine. So there was a good response from the international community, which made things at least better than it would have been otherwise. It was still pretty terrible, but you didn't see a return to the kind of numbers of dead or similar uh, levels of need that there'd been in the 2011 famine. Which is um, great to hear that you could see some impact. Yeah, and, and there was a genuine mobilisation. The UN were doing a lot of work. The British were involved. I mean, there were all sorts of people who were, and, and increasingly, actually, um, uh, the Turks and other powers acting unilaterally or bilaterally quite often. But still, there was a lot going on, and that did have an impact. I mean, that was quite a successful intervention in many ways, though clearly there's still great need, and, and the numbers of displaced are very high, over a million. Still, it could have been much worse, but for that relatively early intervention. South Sudan, sadly, it's very difficult to be positive about that at all. It is. Again, when we're talking numbers of displaced people, South Sudan is, is really something. Absolutely. It's, it's, and, and not just that. I mean, it just appears utterly intractable. The political situation is dire. The, the security situation is getting worse and worse as, as there is a snowballing in, in anarchy, insecurity, disorder, ethnic violence, uh, traditional clashes between all sorts of different groups, new groups turning up, um, old groups fading away. I mean, it's extremely complicated uh, situation in which civilians are bearing the, the, the greatest burden. And there is I think most worryingly, very little way you can see of it getting much better, uh, at least in the short term. So I think South Sudan, and certainly from a personal point of view, um, South Sudan was a deeply, deeply saddening uh, experience as a reporter. Uh, and there have been some pretty nasty experiences generally in terms of what you're seeing. Um, it, it has seen a lot of very tragic things this year, but South Sudan was particularly uh, depressing. Jason, you're based in Johannesburg. We've just had the ANC conference. Cyril Ramaphosa is to be the new party leader. But looking back, it's been a lively year for South Africa. No, it has been a, a particularly tumultuous year. South African economy is in a pretty shaky state. A lot of institutions have been undermined in recent years, particularly in the uh, security area. Um, but others have shown themselves to be very strong. So the media is still pretty strong. The judiciary particularly is very strong. So going forward in 2018, I think we're going to see very, very interesting developments as the ruling ANC look to forthcoming elections in 2019. Will they go down a populist 
strategy? Uh, will they look to major reforms that would please international investors? I mean, we just don't know. So it's a really critical moment for South Africa. It's a critical moment from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, and in some ways from a cultural perspective too. And what sort of South Africa is going to be there in five years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time? Liz, reasons to be positive. It's been a tough year for, for women in, in developing countries, but women do seem to be working together to try and find solutions. Could we be at a tipping point? I think we could be. I was speaking to Robin Gorner from She Decides quite recently, and she was saying that basically the shock of Trump's election and the expansive reach of the global gag rule has galvanised action this year. She was sort of saying, if things get so bad, you get a strong reaction. And if you push us this hard, women will rise up. And that's exactly what they've been doing this year. And I think that can only be a good thing. So onward and upwards. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this week. A huge thanks to Jason and Liz for joining us. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. Just search Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's podcasts at theguardian.com. Till next time, I've been Lucy Lamble. The producers were Gabriella Jones and Rowan Slaney. And this was the Global Development Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.